Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, um, welcome everybody. It's uh, great to see such a good crowd tonight for this fascinating talk we're about to have. Um, my name's uh, Linda Connor and I'm from the Department of Anthropology and I'll be chairing the proceedings uh, this afternoon. Before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. We also acknowledge and pay respect to traditional owners throughout Australia and to First Nations peoples around the world. Their knowledge and teaching as interlocutors, critics, scholars and creative producers expand and enliven the practice of anthropology and many other fields of knowledge that we will touch upon today in this lecture. So uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Michael Hertzfeld, Professor Michael Hertzfeld. He's the Ernest E. Monrad Professor of the Social Sciences at the Department of Anthropology at Harvard University. And I think today's lecture will also show the relevance of two other positions that Michael uh, Hertzfeld holds at Harvard University. He's also uh, an affiliated professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Design. And he's also the director of the Thai Studies Program at the Harvard Asia Center. Professor Hertzfeld is a person of many talents and also many destinations. Uh, his international academic affiliations include the visiting professor of critical heritage studies at the Insta International Institute of Asian Studies at Leiden University, honorary professorial fellow at the Faculty of Arts, University of Melbourne, and Changjiang Scholar, Shanghai International Studies University. There's quite a few more, but that gives you a flavour of the diversity of the locations and uh, scholarly work that Professor Hertzfeld is engaged in. Professor Hertzfeld's re research and teaching interests range both broad and deep. His research interests span many dimensions of social theory, of nation states and citizenship, of bureaucratisation and what he terms the social production of indifference, of politics and history. His theory and methods are informed by many years of field research in Greece, especially the villages of Crete and also in Italy. Uh, his earlier books, just to give you a couple of uh, titles, include 1985, The Poetics of Manhood, Contest and Identity in a Cretan Mountain Village, and 1991, a Place in History, Monumental and Social Time in a Cretan Town. 1992, The Social Production of Indifference, Exploring the Symbolic Roots of Western Bureaucracy. His 1997 book, a Cultural Intimacy, 
social poetics in the nation state is translated into many languages and last year was published in a third edition with new material drawn from research in Thailand and China. There are many other books and uh, there's no time to go through them here, but I just wanted to mention uh, the most recent book, a 2016 book, Siege of the Spirits, Community and Polity in Bangkok, which is a major outcome of research projects in Thailand. Today's lecture takes on a momentous topic, the future of urban society, class conflict, and some really compelling concepts of Professor Hertzfeld himself, urban cleansing, monumental vacuity, and urban purity. There would be few more qualified to speak on this topic and these processes from a comparative perspective than Professor Hertzfeld. While continuing to undertake field research in Crete and Italy, he has developed a substantial research program in Thailand's fast-changing cities exposing the conflicts and contradictions of so-called urban renewal, beautification, and conservationist regimes. This research is now extending into urban China. It is research with great relevance for the intense political conflicts around development agendas in the urban space that characterizes our city, and I know it's going to be of gripping uh, importance and interest to people here. So it gives me great pleasure to hand the microphone to Professor Hertzfeld to present today's lecture, Space, Social Conflict and the Future of Urban Society, a Comparative View. Thank you. Thank you very much, Linda, for that lovely introduction. And thank you all very much for coming. I may disappoint those, especially my discussant, who was expecting a paper, um, but as I hate being read at, I felt that I could not inflict this on such a distinguished audience. So I will speak using, uh, as my only prop, the PowerPoint, which will go by fairly quickly because I do intend to cover quite a significant range of places. So the first question that I want to put to you is why compare? I will not in this talk, despite the title of the series, speak at all about Sydney. I will leave you to do the intellectual labor of seeing why talking about a small town in Crete, Athens, Rome, Bangkok, Shanghai, Beijing, why this should be relevant to Sydney. But I can assure you that those who think that a city, any city in the world, London, my own home city, for example, can be solved simply by looking only at that city or burying their heads in the sand. I know that there are people who feel this way. They don't understand the importance of comparison. I'm assuming that you've come to listen today because you don't belong to that tradition. And I hope that you will join with me in thinking forward from what I think is a fairly cogent set of comparisons. The first thing to remember, and this is where I think anthropologists do have a practical advantage since they do field work, is that urban solutions are not made in a cookie-cutter fashion. They can't be developed on a one-size-fits-all basis. To the contrary, 
it is important to have knowledge of the language, history, and culture of the place where you do the research. And sometimes that means of many languages, various cultures, and quite a wide variety of historical traditions. Anthropologists focus on detail, and people often say to me, all of that detail seems rather irrelevant. Why should we bother with it? We can draw up plans and then see how they work. By then, it's too late. Some of those plans are homicidal. Uh, the ones that I refer to as spatial cleansing in particular, and I'll be talking essentially about that pattern this evening, are homicidal. I use that word advisedly because people who are deprived of their home places, deprived of the places where they are used to living and working, very often end with nothing to live for. And it is very important, I think, to realize that while many of us, I'm a good example of this, can flit from country to country, it's not easy for people who don't have that uh, past experience, they don't have the equipment emotionally or intellectually to do it. And even if they are able to do it, it should not be inflicted on them. It should be a choice that they make through the exercise of their own individual agency. Human dignity is not something that can be sacrificed simply for planning or bureaucratic convenience. The second point that I want to emphasize then is that among all of the various uh, comparanda that we can adduce, class conflict is extremely important. Much of what is happening in today's cities involves pushing those who are least able to resist the forces of the neoliberal economy out to the margins where they suffer doubly because what happens then is that they live further away, they are in an even more precarious position than before with regard to their work and they have to spend more on getting to that work. Whether we're talking about Brasilia, which after all was held up as the ultimate example of modernist urban planning, or any of the cities I'm going to talk about today, or even Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I now live and where my own university at one point was refusing to raise the wages of its workers until there was a virtual student revolution that, that caused the administration to change its mind. When people do not have the financial means to move beyond their immediate area, any attempt to drive them further away is tantamount to manslaughter. So, a comparative perspective then invites us to search for broader solutions. It invites us to look beyond the narrow confines of our own often bureaucratized and sanitized offices and to think about why such, uh, such things matter. It may seem obvious when I put it this way now. Of course it matters that poorer people suffer. And yet so many of us may go away from this discussion thinking noble thoughts about doing something about it, but not really very clear about what we can do about it. Anthropologists are not the problem solvers, and I don't intend to offer too many solutions tonight, but we can at least point to the problems that might be soluble given a different understanding of what planning is all about. This requires standing up to the people who represent the older form, or the modernist forms of urban planning, and also those who reinforce those patterns through authoritarian forms of government. 
In Thailand, for example, today, there is a regime that, according to one colleague of mine, is uh, Eli Elinoff, is guilty of what he calls despotic urbanism. It's actually, I think, a better term than my special cleansing. They fit together quite well. But the point is that, that this regime is also heir to a democratically elected government that wasn't much better. So democracy, and you know this very well in Australia, is not a, an automatic solution for uh, hegemony, for heavy-handed uh, management from above. In order to make sense of this, one area in which I personally specialize, and you'll see a lot of that in the discussion to follow, is the relationship between housing and heritage. Where people live is also associated with their historical memories and with the historical memories of those around them. Yet, often, we don't ask whose historical memories are going to be conserved in the preservation efforts that characterize uh, so much of the discourse around heritage. This is why I uh, support the idea of critical heritage studies specifically, and I, by critique, I mean a critique that is grounded in social criticism. So that if people are being pushed out of their area in order to build a more convincing historical neighborhood, I have to ask, Heritage, whose heritage, and in whose eyes is, is, is what important? And finally, a very practical matter, namely the relationship between renters and owners. Most people who live in big cities these days are renters. Owners have to have a lot of money in most places. This creates an automatic unfairness because renters are unable to resist the pressures that are put on them when the owners, who are often large conglomerates, large corporate institutions, start pushing the, uh, the, the rents up at sometimes quite extraordinary rates. When I was doing fieldwork in Rome in 1999-2000, the rents in some parts of the area where I was working went up literally 10 times in one year. Now, owners complain that rent control is unfair to them. And they have an argument, some of them, those who are small private owners uh, who perhaps need that extra money in order to make changes to the houses that will make them livable, even for the renters. But there has to be some way of achieving a balance between those needs. And unfortunately, government policies tend to kowtow either to populist sentiments that promise a lot more than they can deliver, or to conservative elements that say, basically, we're not interested. So I'm going to talk about four countries today, in a not quite alphabetical order, China, Italy, Greece, and Thailand. My knowledge of China is mostly rather second-hand, and I will be referring significantly to the work of one of your colleagues here at the University of Sydney, Dr. Non Akarak Basad-Kun, uh, but um, I have some second-hand derivative knowledge uh, also through having taught in China. Um, I've done, I suppose it's now something like eight and a half years of fieldwork cumulatively in the other three countries, which is a big chunk out of anyone's life. And I think that it is fair to say that the people with whom I've done fieldwork, especially people living in the high mountains of Crete or in resisting eviction in the center of Rome or the center of Bangkok, 
have taught me more about the meaning of human dignity than any intellectual exercise in a university can do. This, however, is not to say that the role of universities is unimportant. Quite to the contrary. We should recognize that there are many different forms of knowledge and try to make them collaborate, cooperate with each other. Now, there are three key dilemmas that will run through my discussion. The first is whether we should put profit before people. Now, the answer, I think, as to where I stand on this is, is a pretty obviously resounding no. But how do we prevent this? How do we stand up to those massive economic forces that seem to show very little interest in the impact on the psychology, on the living conditions, and on the simple health of those people who are forced to move, forced to be evicted uh, because of this phenomenon that is often called gentrification. The second question is that question about housing and heritage. Which comes first? And how do we determine whose heritage and whose housing will be privileged? And finally, how do we avoid exacerbating class conflict? Or if you're a Maoist, you might say, should we avoid exacerbating class conflict? I would actually argue for what I call the militant middle ground on this point as in so much else. And what I would say is this, that some degree of conflict is always necessary. Ideologies that preach harmony, and there are many of them, People talk about the unity of the nation, Confucian harmony in China, many, many examples of this. But governments in particular that preach harmony as a principle of social welfare are either lying because they know perfectly well that it's papering over the very real divisions that exist, or they are ignoring problems that will engulf them because social conflict, especially class conflict, is massive in its consequences, as we know from so many historical examples. So let me begin with the place that I probably know least well, the one I'm going to describe, which is China, uh, because this is actually a very well-known example, uh, thanks to the media. These uh, hutong, uh, these uh, traditional Beijing dwellings, uh, as you see in this picture, have been restored. In some cases, they've been replaced by new hutong that are made with more modern materials. And while you might say there's nothing wrong with that, it has not benefited the people who lived in the quarter originally. I'm going to race through these a little bit, but you see we're looking at a part of Beijing where there is still a fairly vibrant social life going on. However, uh, gradually, uh, wealthier people move in, and we get this kind of thing, which is uh, that the old traditional buildings often removed and replaced by a simulacrum, which is then equipped, as you can see from this description, with a jacuzzi, with air conditioning, staffed by charming English-speaking staff, and basically uh, becoming a kind of tourist element. And the deception of the tourist is that they are being told, you are now going to experience the traditional life of a Beijing Hutong district. Well, I don't think that in the Qing dynasty they had too many jacuzzis. In Shanghai and other cities, we still see a, uh, a vibrant uh, social life, and 
This is actually from, uh, from Chengdu, and I wanted to show you, no, from Nanjing, I'm sorry. I wanted to show you exactly what was going on in the previous picture, because here we have an example of something that perhaps seems a little bit informal. I'll go back to the slide just for one moment. The man is having his ears cleaned. Um, it doesn't look very comfortable either. <laughs> but what is interesting to me is the fact that, that the only way that apparently uh, officialdom can deal with this kind of thing, if they don't prohibit it, is to heritageize it, is to turn it into something uh, that uh, is reified, is, is solidified as a kind of heritage. But heritage, in that sense, has its very uncomfortable sides. Aside from anything else, a lot of shared activities in a very public way. Now, it's possible to argue that there's certainly nothing wrong with this, and I would so argue because I would say that people who live this kind of social life expect, for example, well, I wouldn't know anything about getting one's hair cut, of course, but, um, but, but uh, again, having your hair cut is a perfectly public act, as is having your ears cleaned. These sorts of things have to be taken into account when planners start talking about population density, because when they talk about there not being enough space for people to have privacy, they are assuming that privacy is what people want. This is not a cultural universal. It may be the product increasingly universalized of a certain way of living enabled by the neoliberal economy and the privilege, therefore, of the wealthy. The Chinese anthropologist Zhang Li has argued, in fact, that the privatization of domestic space in China has accompanied the rise of the, uh, of the urban middle class, which increasingly wants privacy for precisely those matters that concern the care of the body and soul, if you will. But to say that this is somehow universally unacceptable immediately creates an unnecessary problem for planners because it creates an unnecessary assumption that more space will be needed and therefore low-rise buildings must be cleared away in order to make way for high-rise buildings that in most cases make no provision for social life because, well, you can't really play cards uh, or, or mahjong or whatever it is uh, in, a, in a lift. You can try, of course. Um, more of the same. And certainly the capacity of local communities, this is in Shanghai, to observe police and make sure that everybody is behaving and that no intrusive elements come in, nicely exemplified by that eye. And again, Shanghai, a very warm social life. The Shanghai municipality, by the way, has tried to get rid of people, uh, stop people wearing pajamas in public. Um, uh, I think it, personally, I think it's rather charming, but I, I'm fascinated by this insistence that wearing pajamas is undignified. Um, I think, it, it, again, it has something to do uh, with some global hierarchy of ideas about what is acceptable, a kind of decorum uh, that originates in the West. And therefore, uh, the local authorities have decided that now, especially that we are a cosmopolitan city, it's inappropriate for people to see our citizens dressed like this. Now, this is actually taken from my visit to uh, Dr. Akra Prasotkun's uh, field site. Um, 
and as he has pointed out in, in his own work, um, social conflict is not only about class. Social conflict can exist among people of the same class. In this particular case, we're looking at a bathroom with at least three light bulbs and at least, I think, three boilers uh, in this case, um, although there were six people using them. Each unit living in that house had its own switches because the idea that you could share the electricity with anyone else and be sure that they wouldn't cheat you uh, was unacceptable. Now, one might immediately say, but this is terrible. This means that these Chinese people really cannot get on with each other. An anthropologist, however, would argue that this is simply an example uh, of the way in which people manage the potential for conflict rather than doing what we would think was the socially rational thing, namely share the expenses and maybe drop the cost a little bit, they prefer to avoid the conflict that would arise if people accused each other of stealing. In the same way, it's perfectly acceptable for Shanghainese people to have strong boxes located outside their houses and held down with very heavy chains and padlocks. We would probably see that, most of us, as an insult to our neighbors. Right? You don't trust your neighbors. In a Greek village, certainly, that's how it would be interpreted. But again, we have to understand that people take precautions against various kinds of interference in ways that are socially relevant and are spatialized in a way that planners do not take into account. Because ultimately, if this society is to continue with some of the same values it has, it will also expect to be able to continue to divide up the electricity resources to have a strong box publicly displayed, not as an expression of disrespect or, or, or suspicion so much as simply accepting the common wisdom that some people can't be trusted and you never know where they come from. So. Meanwhile, of course, here in the same area in Shanghai, uh, you see again the the process of gentrification uh, moving forward. And I will talk a bit later on about the kind of gentrification we're looking at here. But I want to switch immediately now to Rome. That's the symbol of Rome. I like the idea of giving you a slight cultural culture shock in the middle of a talk. So let's look at uh, these venerable churches. And you'll say, what's this got to do with housing? Well, um, I think the contrast is quite interesting. For those of you who know Italian, you will see immediately that the in the front there is a huge poster uh, advertising uh, some uh, uh, international company's products, and then at the top, homeless people have unfurled a banner saying "Senza casa," homeless. So. Clearly, there is some paradox here about the church that is thought to have been one of the most ruthless landlords, uh, along with all the other churches that stand in for the Vatican. So that the Vatican, in this collective sense, has been one of the major uh, actors in the eviction of ordinary people from their homes. And in the area where I did fieldwork, a place called uh, the Rione Monti, the, the square has become a gathering place now for the majority of Montichani who no longer live in Monti, but come back every Sunday and congregate around this fountain as a reassertion of their identity uh, in that place. And it's actually very much like um, an example that Dr. Akarapasit Kun told, showed us the other day in his lecture in Melbourne, where he talked about 
uh, how people would come back and sit in exactly the place in what was now an open plaza where their tiny cramped little houses had previously been. So people are attached to space in ways that are not immediately translatable into planners' terms. And this is why planners ought to ask, if they don't ask the residents, at least ask anthropologists if they have any idea about what their understanding of that space would be. This is an old photograph taken in the same area. I wanted to introduce you very briefly to one of the more unpleasant characters in Roman history, uh, Alexander VI, the Pope, a Borgia Pope, who um, uh, set up this monument um, and, and uh, obviously invested quite a lot of money in this area. Subura had been the, the red light district of ancient Rome, and it continues to this day to have something of that kind of reputation. It's therefore, of course, become very... Um, attractive to what you might call the soft porn mentality of, well, as one man put it to me, politicians, merchants, actors, and prostitutes. Um, in other words, it is a place uh, that attracts people with money, and this is the area that I mentioned earlier where uh, rents went up by 10 times in a year. But it's also a place where the older forms of uh, social activity and commercial activity have been very much damaged. This was a huge market, not quite open air as you see, but uh, very sort of tall and cavernous, that was built during the fascist era and at its height had something like a hundred stalls and now only three functioning. Because as the social life of the, of the community crumbles and there was a very intense social life where people shared their food on the street, would sit in each other's front porches and talk to each other, as this dissipates because a new class of people who have no interest in the area moves in, the commercial life of the quarter also collapses because nobody's buying these goods. Obviously, if you're a politician from another city and you're just using that house, that apartment, uh, as, a, as a kind of um, dormitory, uh, then uh, all you will uh, be interested in here uh, is the historic value of your old house, it's something to show off with, it's cultural capital, you won't be very interested in buying uh, your goods at a slightly higher price from the neighborhood market than you would get them by ordering them from a, uh, a supermarket or even online. Uh, Rome is still connected to the old water system of the ancient times, and these fountains uh, were very much, they're called big noses for obvious reasons, nazoni, were very much a symbol of uh, Rome's long history. I think it's very significant that one of the most neoliberally minded mayors of Rome, the ostensibly left-wing, but not actually very left-wing, Francesco Rutelli, tried to introduce a, 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 a policy of closing these fountains down. Now there, there was enough social resistance by people wealthy enough to make a fetish of this locally significant uh, 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 architectural uh, item uh, that, uh, in fact, the policy was abandoned. Now, there's an interesting feature to the Romans' problem that doesn't exist anywhere else, and I want briefly to introduce it to you uh, in order to show you that sometimes things that, again, planners would regard as non-material, as irrelevant, especially religious affiliation, affect the way people behave. Christ, to many Italians, is a rather distant and um, severe figure. 
who is whose interest in human beings is mediated in good Italian fashion by La Mamma, the Madonna. And uh, uh, many Italians, many Romans will point out to you that medallions like this uh, are actually emblematic of the way that, that um, Italian men interact with their families. Be that as it may, what is particularly interesting here is that these medallions were not a sign of unusual piety on the part of the people of Monti, but quite the opposite. They were considered to be such egregious sinners that they needed to ask for the intercession of the Virgin Mary much more often than people who lived in other areas. This was, after all, remember, the red light district. It was a pretty ruffianly district until it got gentrified. So you could actually regard gentrification as as a kind of architectural pawn. It's taking over an area that has a terrible reputation and fetishizing it in a way that uh, allows you to say, I'm living dangerously. Now, um, the importance of these medallions uh, is, however, even more, is, is, is even more significant for our story because there is a custom, or I should say there is an institution uh, in Italian law, whereby if you have broken the law, especially with regard to the urban code and the conservation code, you can go to a special office called the office for the condono, and you get to pay one-tenth of the fines that you've accumulated. You never pay them right away because you know one of these things is going to come along. And at the crucial moment when it becomes possible, you pay, you pay the, the, the one-tenth uh, that you're allowed, and you get a piece of paper that says you are now absolved of any guilt. Now, those of you who know something about Catholicism can already, I'm sure, anticipate what's coming. I decided in good anthropological fashion to play the village idiot and go and see the people in charge of this, uh, this scam, because it's really what it is. Um, and I met this very charming gentleman. He was the uh, associate director of the office for the building condono of Rome. I mean, it really is such an office. And <clears throat> before, and I said, look, I, I really don't understand uh, what this is all about, could you explain? And he said to me, well, yes, um, but you know, Professor, we are, we are a Catholic country, you know that. And before I could stop myself, I blurted out, oh, you mean indulgences, right? In other words, the piece of paper you get from the priest that says that you've done enough penance and have now been absolved of your sins. And of course, then it all came out and I was able to talk to a lot of people. It became very clear that the bureaucratic practice that we see here was maintained, perhaps even invented, by former Vatican bureaucrats, because don't forget that Rome was actually, essentially, the, under the control of the Vatican for two millennia, nearly two millennia. And this then went into generic Italian law, and in Rome in particular, there is a very strong feeling that if you do the right kind of penance, you can get your piece of paper. And just as um, the, whoops, what's happening? I must be, anyway, just as, as um, what, just as um, uh, people um, tell you that you must never uh, go into the confessional with the intention of committing the sin again, right? 
you go in the end of the confession, uh, if confession with the intention of purging your soul of any such temptation, but of course everybody does it, so they say, well, yes, you get your condono from the office, you go away, and the next opportunity you have, you break the law again. Everybody does it, so why shouldn't you? Now, this, I think, shows you that these principles really are written in stone, because if you read it, uh, I'll read it to you in translation, and you'll see what, what this is about. His Holiness in our Lord Pius VI, with a, a decree of the 18th of February 1797, concedes to all of the faithful of the one and the other sex an indulgence of 200 days, applicable even to those souls currently in purgatory, every time they devotedly and with their hearts at least contrite, recite the litanies of the most blessed virgin in front of this sacred image. So you do your thing, you absolve your soul of the sin, and this is the model for the bureaucratic practice of the, of the uh, condono. And it has very interesting consequences. So people, for example, build an illegal extra room, add on a toilet they're not supposed to put in there, um, and they know that if they do it quickly enough, they do it, of course, under an umbrella so nobody can see, they might actually get away with it. But if they are caught, they will be fined, and if they are patient, they will never have to pay more than one-tenth of that fine. So the city, as one architect pointed out to me, is like a palimpsest of all of the sins of the, of the ordinary people, including, of course, the sins of the cardinals and princes who ruled the city. Now, you may wonder what all of this has to do with the current situation, but I would put it to you that it is actually very relevant because what is happening now is that there is so much pressure on poorer people to leave that uh, many of them uh, are surrendering their houses to people who have the power to find very expensive companies that will fix up those old houses very quickly and thereby, um, again, violate the law. So actually, the incidence of these kinds of, of uh, violations of the law increases with gentrification. Let us not assume, therefore, that just because the gentrifiers say, we are improving the neighborhood, and they really do have the goal to say that, let us not assume uh, that uh, it makes the population any more law-abiding. It probably has the exact opposite effect. Uh, Monty is also interesting because it is still a very, or it was while I was doing my field work, very much of a family-based uh, area. So here is a church, the only one in the middle of what was a stronghold of the Communist Party of Italy until it was disbanded, the only one to insist on keeping the old fascist symbols uh, because, uh, as the people said when, when the authorities wanted to destroy that monument, these are our family members. So there was strong family attachment to place. And this is something that makes displacement very painful. So when the inhabitants of this house were told after 10 years of struggle, you finally do have to leave. And they had been pressured in all sorts of ways from the landlord's refusal to uh, uh, fix up the place to a rapid sale from one buyer to another who turned out to be a, an inner circle. Uh, so it, it was an entirely, uh, uh, an entirely false uh, 
a set of sails designed to increase the value of the property. Um, they hung on for all that time, hanging out these banners saying no to deportation. But in the end, this kind of uh, managerial power uh, won the day. And you had companies that put up notices like this saying we can sell you very quickly excellent office space and living space at prices which of course none of the current residents had any possibility of paying. Now, one problem is that the majority of the people living in this area, as elsewhere in Rome, were not owners of their properties. A few had managed to become wealthy enough that before the prices went totally out of control, they were able to buy a piece of property in their home area, home area and stay. I don't know what the percentage of such people is, but I cannot imagine that it exceeds 5%. And everybody else, pretty much, whom we knew who was a working class inhabitant was forced to leave. One effect of this was to create a kind of ghost town in which people would come back to work their wives and children would be out in the peripheral areas at a distance of two or three hours by public transportation. And sometimes the husbands, fathers would sleep overnight in their shops, maybe for days on end, because it was simply too expensive and too wearing to keep going out. With the result that the rest of the family was out in the suburbs, often the mother had to work for a living as well. The children were much more prey to all sorts of temptations. And in particular, this, was, this became a major issue with the drug scene. So there you see immediate cause and effect. Gentrification may upgrade the fabric of the neighborhood. It may bring in a wealthier, I'm not going to say a better as they do, but a wealthier class of people. But it damages the people who are forced out. I think justifying the term homicidal that I suggested at the beginning of the talk. So this is what one of these houses looks like now from the outside. And this is what it now looks like on the inside. These are now bijou apartments. When I visited this same house, uh, talked to my friends there, they lived with bare walls. There were rats scurrying around in the courtyard. The place was full of cracks and very damp. So yes, it would be nice to see all of that renewed. The landlords actually steadfastly refused to invest much money in the renewal because they thought that that in itself would force the residents out. So here we see that Despite all the fine talk of improving the neighborhood, what is really at stake is pure profit motive. And this sets up the incipient class struggle that has already erupted in Italy um, several times, uh, because with all of these people moving out to the periphery, or most of them, uh, obviously this is saving up trouble for the future. <coughs> Do you think? Greeks. Well, you don't need me to explain to you what that is, but I want to uh, point out that when Greece became an independent state, German architects were brought in, uh, German and Danish ar architects, and they very quickly tried to convert the appearance of what it looked, frankly, like a set of vi villages into uh, a, a replica of what they had imagined ancient Greece to be. However, some islanders moved in as well, and in particular, a group from the island of Anafi, they moved into this area, into the lee of the Acropolis Hill. And this is an interesting case because the Anafiotes who moved here were building laborers, they were pretty, pretty poor and not very well educated. 
for many years in collusion with the State Archaeological Service, which is very much of a state within a state in Greece. Successive governments tried to get them out. After the fall of the military regime in 1974, people began to say, well, but this place attracts tourists. It's rather picturesque. Suddenly it became chic. And so then artists began to move in. As the artists were able to sell their, their paintings and, and sculptures at reasonable prices, they may not have become super wealthy, but they certainly became a lot wealthier than the original inhabitants, some of whom were very happy to sell out. So the result is that you now have an artist's colony which caters almost entirely to tourists. I, however, would like to take you not to Athens for the Greek part of this, but to the small town of Rethymnos, which is probably today the best preserved of all of the uh, Venetian colonies in the Mediterranean. I know some of that looks a bit Turkish. It's Ottoman because the, the, the fortress wall is definitely Venetian, but the Vene Venetians were defeated uh, by the uh, uh, Ottomans in this place, actually, in 1645. And so there are many uh, Ottoman as well as Venetian monuments in the town. Now, this town had the good fortune, and I say this without irony, the good fortune to be very, very poor for a very long time. Now, why was that good fortune? Well, to understand this, we have to look at the situation in Greece today. Greece is a country that has been hammered mercilessly by the European Union. It has found itself in a, a very uh, uh, difficult position economically. And uh, the uh, inhabitants of this town are suffering much less than anyone else. Why? Because they were forbidden in 1973-74 to make any changes whatsoever to their houses. Suddenly, a rigid conservation regime came in. This was one of the last acts of the military regime. But interestingly enough, the mayor who put this into practice remained very popular. And I think the reason is not hard to see. What happened was this. The people of Rethymnon, mostly not very well educated, had no idea what it meant to say they lived in historic houses, what it meant to say they lived in, in Venetian houses. And those who lived in Ottoman houses would dismiss them as Turkish, uh, and that, of course, meant that they belonged to the enemy. So for many uh, Greeks at that time, these houses were of no value whatsoever. As tourism began to be attracted by the combination of this beautiful architecture and the fact that Rethymno is one of the few places that actually has a beach right in the middle of the city center, um, because the city is built around the bay, um, people began to take much more interest as tourists began to take an active interest in the architecture and to organize walking tours and so on. This brought more and more money into the city. and. Here is the, the, the difference between Rethymno and the other places I've talked about. Almost all the people who lived in the old town of Rethymno owned their houses. They were either families who'd lived there for a very long time, or the descendants of refugees who had come in during the exchange of populations in 1924, when they replaced some Muslim families who were shipped off to Turkey. So suddenly you have a town with owners who don't have the money 
to invest in pulling their houses down and demolishing them and making modern houses and are not being allowed to do it anyway, suddenly realizing that these houses could be a very valuable source of income. So they began to develop hotels, better breakfast places, restaurants, souvenir shops, you name it. And some people simply traded on the fact that they could sell anything they wanted out of those houses because people were intrigued by the idea, for example, of buying some kind of of, of pastry from a, 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 a from the house that we lived in, which was one of the few that actually had a date on the doorway, 1609. But you see the kind of, 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 of architectural elements um, ranging from uh, Venetian to neoclassical 19th century. That's a, a Catholic church, actually. These neoclassical buildings are very typical. But many of the uh, doorways go back to three or 400 years. And then you have this very strange business of imitating the classical motifs. Um, this is actually a hairdressing salon. And just to get the irony across, see you have the whoops, you have the classical bust saying we can make a claim to civilization, to ancient civilization. I'm sorry, there seems to be I think every time I lean into this thing it decides to uh, to, to move. Okay, and then underneath uh, I put the slide where you can actually see the word coiffure so that, you know, the use of French was a good way of, uh, of assuring everybody that we have a high standard of civilization. It's all tied up together with these neoclassical motifs. So there was some kind of gentrification going on, but this is the sort of gentrification I call self-gentrification. Uh, what I mean by self-gentrification is gentrification in which the quality of the housing, this of course is fairly ugly and was soon, I think it's now removed, but, but the quality of the restoration work uh, was improving with the help and connivance of the residents who saw in it a source of their own increasing uh, prosperity. So our, uh, our landlords who were uh, specialty bakers, they used to make just sheets of phyllo pastry and that hairy stuff they call katahifi, but they didn't make the actual sweets at that time. Once they began to get interested in the fact that they lived in this old Venetian house, they would start boasting to tourists who were walking by, inviting them in to see both the traditional craft of making the pastry and also to look at the, at the building, and then saying, and wouldn't you like to buy some of our traditional Cretan pastries, baklava, kataifi, and the rest of it. And so they became quite prosperous. They became very knowledgeable. They would talk very knowledgeably about the Venetian origins of the house. And um, then uh, I discovered that they were also taking vacations, among other places, in Thailand. So um, you have in this story, and it's a story that was repeated around the town, um, you have a case of people actually becoming more prosperous in part because they are owners of something that can be turned into cultural capital in the form of the ownership of historic houses, which is very different, I think, from the, the other situations I've described. In Rome, the residents of Monti knew very well that they lived in a historically important area. They would tell me very confidently that the street on which we lived was 2,000 years old, and they had met the ghost of the Empress Messalina one night. 
but that didn't stop them from being evicted. These people, because they were owners and because they had conformed to the law and especially the conservation laws, were able to hang in there. And now, as I said before, in a time of great economic uncertainty and precariousness for Greece, this town is relatively prosperous. And a sign of that prosperity is that they are also now very happily restoring what used to be considered symbols of an enemy presence, namely all of the Turkish and Ottoman uh, monuments. And the one thing, ironically, that goes by the board, these kinds of designs which were put into the uh, plaster on the walls of the most simple houses, which were mostly built illegally, were declared unesthetic by the archaeological service uh, that said they were not interested in, getting, in, in keeping any of them. I said, look, you know, you claim to be left wing. These people tell me that they put this, these, these decorations up as a sign of their blood and sweat running in the buildings because they put those buildings up when they were desperately poor. But here again you see the debate about heritage. And as people become middle class, they have less and less sympathy for the remnants of that kind of, of, of ideology. I actually think some of these are quite remarkable. Um, not the graffiti, but uh, things like that, for example. Okay. And, of course, uh, the neoclassical houses, which are much newer, mostly uh, mid-19th century, link the history of Crete to the history of the mainland. Uh, Crete has always had a somewhat odd relationship with the main mainland. Um, but this, again, I think, demonstrates that the people have been induced to have an investment in a version of national history that they might never have otherwise thought of as their own. So this is a, a story of success in one sense. You might also say that it was a story of successful brainwashing in another sense. And again, I'm not going to pass judgment. I simply want to signal that the price of the prosperity, the middle class identity that these people obtained, was their increasing uh, uh, concurrence with the dominant ideology uh, of Greek identity. Now, in Thailand, I'm going to deal with uh, something related to this, but it's going to be about how Thai identity is tied up for the middle class with ideals of order. So Thai-ness, of course, is something that the government talks about a lot. And people who want to demonstrate their right to stay put in a community that is threatened by the government will say they are very good representatives of Thai-ness. The government, especially the planners who work for the government, invoke the idea of beautification. And they call it Kwam uh, Suengan, the idea of beauty. And there is another concept closely um, uh, aligned to that, which is the concept of being rebrai, which means essentially being neat and orderly. Now, um, you don't have to worry about all the other details unless you're particularly interested in comparative linguistics, but what I want to say here is that, of course, in every country, there are people who are very concerned with appearances. The current regime in Thailand is very seriously intending to convert as much of the country as it can to a middle-class set of values. That's quite clear. And so the notion of being 
which was pushed very hard by the pre-war and, and post-war uh, dictator, uh, Marshal Pibun, became, uh, again, in recent years, has become uh, something of a, a, a principle. But this idea of being sui, being beautiful, uh, has a number of different uh, different uh, dimensions. Here, for example, I found this quite by chance. I was walking around. Um, somebody uh, offering to paint over wooden doors that we would probably regard as beautiful old antiques. But how do you make them beautiful? You cover them with urethane paint. Um, this monk told me that he, he was happy to have me photograph him. Uh, we have a mutual friend, and I wanted to send the photograph on to the friend. But he said, I will be more soy. I will be more beautiful if I hold a portrait of the king. So he just took a magazine from the uh, uh, rack and, and, and posed with it. Now, you know, you may be amused by this, but it is actually important to understand that this idea of being soy is not just about female beauty, or male beauty for that matter. It's not about, you know, in other words, cosmetic beauty. It's not simply an abstract aesthetic principle. It is very much tied, again, with these, uh, with these middle class values. And a, a nice proof of this is the fact that the ordinary rice that is eaten in Thailand is often known as beautiful rice. Khao Sui. Why? Because the older form of rice, the common form, especially eaten in the north and northeast, is that very lumpy, sticky rice, which is eaten with the hand, but beautiful rice is eaten with a spoon and fork and is therefore a mark of civilization, especially as it falls in perfect granules on the plate. So this is actually a photograph of rice served in a business class compartment of a, of a Thai International Airways flight, and it's a perfect illustration of what is meant by beautiful rice. So with that notion of beauty now in our minds, let's look at this case of Pomahakan, where I did research over a very long period of time, well over a decade. This is the fortress for which uh, the community is named. And what's interesting about it is that it is it was built to repel the French, who were expected to invade Siam in 1782 when uh, Rama I created his, his capital in Bangkok. Ironically, the street that cuts right through the old wall and is known as the King's Progression was touted by Rama V, the first fully absolute monarch of Thailand and the great westernizer and modernizer of Siam, um, as the Champs-Élysées of Asia. So the irony here is that the civilizational discourse that was creeping up behind the, the Siamese, won out in spite of their military preparations. And this is an illustration of something that I think we see in both Greece and Thailand, which is a political condition I define as crypto-colonial. That is, these countries were never formally under Western colonial rule, but they had to create a national culture in accordance with principles that were dictated to them uh, by the colonial powers. Uh, one part of that, uh, of that insistence on the part of the colonial powers was that they should have very clearly defined boundaries. Now, these communities have a very strong sense of order. So we have a photograph here of a meeting taking place with uh, the old elders seated higher than the younger people. So there's space, space is important, but the concept of spatiality that is being invoked here is not about density, it's about hierarchy. And uh, 
hierarchy, it's also expressed in the classic Thai greeting. If you raise your hands high, it's a sign of respect for the other person. It indicates a greater status differential. If you do it like this, uh, it means you probably don't, well, there you are, had it there for a moment, you're trying to show the person you're talking to, in this case the policeman, that you don't give a damn what he's saying, but you do it politely because that's the Thai way. These are the some of the houses in Pomahakan. You see that they are very poor houses, but if we are going to discuss this with planners, we should be asking why it is that they would prefer to live in these houses. We might assume that these houses are terribly uncomfortable and unsanitary. Actually, I don't think they are that unsanitary, but again, people who live in this community would rather live in these houses, I think, than in modern apartments separated uh, by um, uh, different floors. Interestingly enough, the, the authorities, when they uh, uh, say anything about the, about the place, they put up these signs, there's not a word about any community in there. It simply talks about the history of the war. The community, on the other hand, mimics the signs. It uses a very similar kind of signage, but these are all about activities, social activities that take place inside the community. So what are they saying? They're saying we are a living community. We have a life uh, that is dependent on the many professions that are represented here. We do not need you to tell us what our history is. Our history is bound up with the things we do in the space in which we do it. And they have also adopted some of the uh, rhetoric of the officials. So here we have uh, this sign that talks about a house being an ancient house because they want to say to the authorities, and we are perfectly capable of looking after the historic monuments that you have deemed to be important. Why can't you respect what we think is important for us? They also discussed at great length the possibility of uh, redesigning the new houses so that they would fit in better with the old houses, but also serve their purposes better. And so they started to move model houses around on a map, on a scale map, they constructed some new houses with money they raised through their own rotating credit fund, which is what you see going on here. And here, in fact, is one of the old houses facing one of the houses built with money from the rotating credit fund. Now, what did the Bangkok Metropolitan Administration, City Hall, want? They want to get these people out of there completely. So they put up this sign you can't see the top part of it, but it actually has the audacity to say, thank you, Town Hall, for getting back the space of Pomahakan. In other words, here is City Hall congratulating itself in the name of the people for getting rid of the people. Think of the irony of that. More to the point, look at the people they are populating this space with. I think uh, my, the, your reaction uh, will save me a lot of a lot of talking. <laughs> this is the community president, and he is a very passionate uh, individual um, who um, doesn't look a bit like the people in there. And the people, other people who live in the community, don't look like that at all. Here you see the the inscription um, much more clearly. So the top line says. Uh, thank you that you gave back the place for Mahakan. 
I think the, the, the bitter irony of this when 300 people have been threatened with eviction and of those 300, about 180 have now been forced out, doesn't need explaining to this audience. In fact, some of those who remain put up a coffin as a sign of where they thought what they had happened to their community life. In one area in front of the community, the BMA has actually been in control for 10 years and more. This is their handiwork. When I asked them, I asked one, one uh, official who was particularly hostile to the community, I said, why can't you do anything about this? He said, because our people are afraid of the residents. So this gives you a very good idea of how the community is being constructed for public consumption. The town hall is putting it out that these people are bandits, they're, they're dangerous people. Uh, I was actually warned not to go there because my life would be in danger, which from what I know of the community is utter nonsense. Uh, so they were, and of course, when you control the media, uh, especially now when the media are self-censoring, uh, it's very easy to put across any story you want. But I remember even years ago when I first started working there, the chief clerk of the city told me, you really must not go there. They're wife beaters, they're, they're prostitutes, they're drug addicts, in spite of the fact that this is one of the very few communities that in fact had managed to solve its drug problem quite effectively and without any violence. So I think the response of the official speaks for itself. This, by contrast, is the handiwork of the BMA inside the community now. They've started demolishing. The previous slide, sorry, I should go back to that one. This is all that's left of the youth, community youth association. Notice there, there's a sign that points to a heritage museum. What an irony, because in the middle of this are, the, are these poor people who are forced, they're just ordinary workers of the BMA, and I feel very sorry for them because they are being forced to demolish houses that are probably not very different from their own. And that's the demolition beginning, taking place. See, here are the BMA workers coming off. But there is one success story, and that is the place that I talked about before, Resimnos. So I want to go back to that for a moment. I told you the story before. I'm just going to zip through these slides. Some of them are the same ones you've already seen. And I put them in like this. Here is, by the way, our landlords. So working very hard still, but able to take vacations abroad. And actually, the young man there, the son, uh, is an engineer, and the daughter is, 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 uh, runs a kindergarten. So these are people who have self-gentrified. Pomahakan could have done the same thing. It's very clear to me that it could have done the same thing. But the people in the BMA said, among other things, look, if these people live there, after one generation, there'll be so many more of them, it will be unbearable. Well, that's certainly not true, because people do leave, uh, do move out uh, at a fairly consistent rate. But more to the point, it should be the choice of the people themselves to decide uh, what's going to happen to them. These people were able to take their destinies in their own hands. There's no shame about going back to doing this kind of manual labor at the same time, and it's, it's an honored tradition. But at the same time, uh, these are people who have been able to enjoy many of the benefits of belonging to the middle class. If the people of Pomahakan had been enabled to create a community on the site, and there was one governor of Bangkok, a man called Apirakusayotin, who actually tried to do it, 
before his own bureaucrat stabs him in the back. If that had not happened, if the planners had not revolted, because it was essentially the Department of Public Works that, that skewered that plan, today you would have had a very similar situation in Pomahan. You would have had a small group of people who would have been a model for emulation, not only elsewhere in Thailand, but around the world. People who had shown that it is possible for a community with a strong sense of its own identity to live together with a national history and to engage uh, in uh, the work of protection and conservation. So this is Rathignol today. You see a very prosperous looking place. So I've held your attention, I think, quite well for quite a long time. So I want to finish with a few very simple propositions. <coughs> so first of all, making a profit doesn't necessarily mean gentrification of the, of the conventional kind or the destruction of community and social life. Self-gentrification of the kind that the people in Retivnaw had achieved um, was, uh, was clearly was a viable option, and it worked very well for them. Indeed, it has worked so well for them that in a country with a huge economic problem, they stand out as a group of people who have benefited from something that goes against the standard planning tradition uh, of that country, because certainly Greek planners are not known for being particularly innovative. Secondly, population density and initial wealth, that is how much money people have when the gentrification begins, determine the outcome only if the prices and the, uh, the price of land, the price of buildings, and the rents remain stable. It is easier, it seems to me, to achieve something like this, much easier, if people actually have legal control over their homes. Now, it's obviously not practicable suddenly to make all of the people who are renting property in the big cities of this world owners. <laughs> that would certainly start a neoliberal revolution of a very nasty kind. But it should be possible through education. And some of these managerial people clearly need educating. It should be possible to say to them, your longer term profits will be much more stable if you can maintain a population that will be content with where it lives, that will be able to continue in the lifestyle that it enjoys, and that will achieve a sufficient level of prosperity that you will not have to worry about the deterioration of neighborhoods under your control. This is a very different kind of, of proposition. There have been social thinkers, going back to people like Jane Jacobs for sure, who have talked about this, but it does not seem to have any real impact on many of the urban planning departments, at least of my experience. So how do you stabilize rental arrangements? Well, obviously rent control is one such device, but it does create a great deal of grievance as well. On the other hand, if people become aware that through developing long-term contractual arrangements uh, with, their, um, with their tenants, they may actually be able, in a relatively short space of time, to predict exactly where their financial situation is going, this will make for a more stable economic climate. Thirdly, there's a big misunderstanding, and Pomahakan, I think, illustrates that better than any of the other cases I've talked about, about what tourists really want. 
First of all, of course, not all tourists are the same. One of the difficulties we anthropologists have in studying tourism is that tourists come and go, so there's no real community of tourists you can talk to. On the other hand, we all know tourists, and most of us have been tourists, and we have encountered people, as we have wandered around the world as tourists, of varying kinds with varying reactions. Now, there are certainly some people who have such a passion for formal national culture that they will go to a hundred palaces and, and temples in one day without complaining at all. Most tourists would much rather have a mix of being able to enjoy the social life of a community, being able to eat street food, which by the way, the regime in Thailand is cracking down and most of the people in Pomahakan were street food sellers in fact, but they decided this is incompatible with the idea of or the ideals of order that they've been promoting. So that again is in serious danger. So it's very difficult in that kind of situation to persuade any kind of government, let alone an authoritarian regime, that their best interests might actually lie in allowing ordinary people to tell them what works on the street. And yet, if they try to create a situation in which total legality prevails, every anthropologist who has ever studied any kind of community can tell them it won't work. To be quite blunt, the nation state depends on corruption. No government can function without it, and no government can function with an absolutely perfect set of laws because there's no such thing. James Scott pointed out this very important principle when he talks about the British work to rule. Not a strike, but if you work to rule, in other words, you can't be fired for disobedience because you've obeyed every rule in the book. But if the rules in the book say that every time a train stops at a station, every wheel has to be inspected, imagine how many minutes it would take to paralyze the entire railway system of a country. And the workers of British Rail did that very successfully on at least three occasions, I think. So it's clear that as long as bureaucrats continue to think in terms of an ordered existence that has absolutely no relationship with the realities of social life, they're not going to solve any of these problems. And people are going to be victimized, and the ones who are going to be victimized are going to be the poor and the defenseless. This is not simply to say, let's feel sorry for the poor. That doesn't take us anywhere. We have to try to re-educate the bureaucrats. And I have a suggestion about how to do it. <coughs> So first of all, I've talked about the necessity of conflict already. Conflict should be historically remembered. When you bury conflict, when you act as if nothing ever happened, all you do is create new resentment. If you allow people to exhibit in their museums, on their heritage sites, and so on, the story of past class conflict, they will feel represented, even if in the end they were the losers. So it's very important to recognize the importance of conflict in social life. More to the point, since I'm trying to conclude here on the note of what could we at least begin to do to try to alleviate this horrendous situation in which bureaucrats seem to have no understanding of the way in which ordinary people live, even though they are ordinary people themselves. We should never forget that, by the way. So my suggestion is this. Every bureaucrat who works in a housing agency run by a government, whether it's a city government or a national government, should be forced to live with poor people and particularly with the inhabitants of communities that have been condemned for eviction. 
before that person is then invited to, an expre to express an opinion on what will happen. My hunch is that some of these people, at least, will learn as I did, I coming from a very privileged background and not really having much understanding of what it would mean to live in such a place. They will learn from these people the meaning of human dignity. In the end, the constitution of most nation states today have exactly the same phrase. They say, because after all, constitutions tend to be written in a kind of cookie-cutter idiom, that every citizen has the right to human dignity, and human dignity includes the right to have a roof over your head. If indeed all the constitutions of the world say that, and if indeed all of the laws of all of those countries were consistent, we would not have a problem. People would continue to live where they are, and efforts would be made to help them gentrify themselves, improve their circumstances, live a better life. What has interfered? What has gone wrong? In the age in which we live today, a tendency that Marcel Mauss identified well over a century ago has become stronger than ever. And it is this, that financial value has come to be the criterion into which all other forms of value are translated. If you can sell a work of art, that increases its value. If you can sell it for more money, it increases the value still further. If you can make a profit out of running a not-for-profit, think about that one, you have increased your own financial value. People are valued not for what they are, but for what they earn. Anthropology as a comparative discipline is constantly reminded of the absurdity of this situation. Not just the absurdity, but the tragedy of the situation. And our profession is frequently mocked in public because people don't really know what anthropology is. It sounds very abstruse. It's a difficult ancient Greek word. I tell people that the ancient Greek word meant gossip monger, but that doesn't seem to reassure them. We study the everyday trivialities that constitute the lives we all lead. We in this room don't need any protection because we have the financial means for the moment to resist, although it is very disturbing to me that the precariousness of the working classes is rapidly taking over the academic profession as well. John Gledhill talks about the proletarianization of academia. I would be proud to be called a proletarian. That's not the point. The point is that the precarity of our existence is engineered by those who want all value to become financial, so that only those who count, uh, sorry, only those who have a lot of money will count. And this is reflected in the situation of housing today. One of the reasons that people think anthropology is obscure is that we used to work in places that, uh, uh, and with, with peoples who seem very exotic. And yet, as, as Linda Connor demonstrated in her very fine introduction today, these people deserve our respect. We have much to learn from them. I can assure you that the same applies to poor, uneducated people from our own societies wherever they are. They taught me the core of the anthropology I know. 
and they have given me the commitment to bring to you this message. We've got to do something about it. And the first thing we have to do is to educate the bureaucrats because they often are the least well-educated of all. Not the least well-educated in formal terms, but the least well-educated in terms of the meaning of social life. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michael. There was uh, a lot of um, deep analysis and also some great home truths that uh, people living in Sydney will really appreciate from your talk and probably Kurt will have one or things to say about. Uh, look, uh, it, it's a pleasure to uh, introduce Associate Professor Kurt Iverson uh, in the um, urban geography area of the Department of Geography and School of Geosciences. Uh, Kurt is also has the esteemed position in this university amongst the staff of being the president of the um, Sydney University branch of the National Tertiary Education Union. So he's certainly no stranger to class conflict and protest movements in all their manifestations, uh, both internally and externally. And uh, those who... Um, uh, follow these matters will will know that uh, Kurt has been very active and indeed uh, both as a unionist and in his professional capacity um, with various urban issues around Sydney including um, the, the protests against the privatisation of the inner west bus services and certainly um, Kurt's heard, voice is heard very loudly on community radio at rallies and protests uh, so he's um, very in tune, I think, with some of the issues that uh, Michael raised and also are very current for us. Um, Kurt said to me that um, I could present his research area as cities and citizenship. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to him to make a few comments. Thanks. Thanks, Linda. So um, it's pretty tough to be the discussant uh, on a talk such as this, Michael, I must say. Um, it was so wonderful to be in the presence, I think, of such big thinking on a Friday afternoon here. Um, and also uh, to have the benefit of such a long period of deep, deep engagement with the places in which you've been working. Um, so just wow, really. Um, I only want to take a couple of minutes of your time because I think it's important that everybody has a chance to ask Michael some questions uh, and engage with his points. But he did invite us at the beginning of his talk to think about the importance of comparison when we're thinking about urbanisation and uh, contemporary urban life. And also... Um, <clears throat> invited us to do some of that intellectual labour of thinking about how some of the places that he's engaged with might resonate with, with our place here in Sydney. Um, and I think the talk really does speak to the power of that kind of comparative frame um, for thinking about the urban. Uh, and more than that, it seems to me, it, it speaks to the power of thinking about that comparative frame from different places that aren't the classic... <laughs> 
you know, Lower East Side villages of Manhattan from which we tend to keep thinking about urban life, um, uh, you know, because classic books have been written about them, etc. But thinking about Greece and Thailand and China um, and Italy, as Michael has done, is also, you know, bringing uh, new and exciting things uh, into our thinking. So those of you who are Sydney-siders, I'm sure don't need me to make any connections between some of the points that Michael has just been making about contemporary evictions uh, and marginalizations and attacks on human dignity uh, that are going on in the places that he's worked with uh, and what's going on around us, uh, indeed within a few kilometers of the place in which we gather right now. Um, from a founding dispossession uh, of Indigenous people that is ongoing, as anybody who was at the presentation given uh, on Tuesday night from the Metropolitan Aboriginal Land Council will know, uh, we are now living through, in parallel with that, a series of other evictions in our city, evictions of homeless people gathered right now in Martin Place because apparently it's difficult to walk past them every day on your way to work. If you happen to work in Parliament House or one of the banks on that little strip. Evictions of working class and lower income communities from Millers Point, just down the road from them. Evictions of people down the road from us in Redfern, Waterloo, to make way for socially mixed developments. And all of these evictions are highly visible, but at the same time, there are many more invisible evictions going on in our town. The invisible evictions of individual public houses in a suburb like Glebe around the corner being sold off one at a time, not in big job lots, not in a way that's going to make the newspapers, but in a way that is nonetheless profoundly reshaping that community. Evictions of community-owned women's refuges to make way for generic and more commodified services uh, in that space, all sorts of things that we could uh, think about going on right now in our town. Um, and all of them, it seems to me, uh, using these different mixes of the mechanisms that Michael's talked about, whether they be market mechanisms, police mechanisms, bureaucratic and planning mechanisms uh, to both justify and enact those evictions, uh, and indeed to push many people out to the fringes. And I thought that point that Michael made in passing about the sort of double marginalization that happens when people are forced to places that then only deepen um, the, the disadvantage that they experience is also very powerful in this city. Again, all these inner city evictions being justified on the grounds that we can make lots of coin and build lots of socially mixed communities on the very fringe. Now, I was standing in Newbrook Estate on Tuesday afternoon uh, on one side of the street, one of the new build public houses um, in a sea of houses with BMWs in the driveway, as though that is somehow improving the lives of people who've been displaced from communities in which they've lived for years. Um, and apparently it's going to make them aspire to have a BMW too, uh, putting them in one of those neighbourhoods. Right. Laughable indeed. Um, so all this is going on, but I think to finish, you know, Michael's point talk does, of course, pose those p compelling questions for us about it's easy to kind of stand up and, you know, rail against those kinds of evictions and dispossessions, but what is it that we're to do? Um, and here I will say that the answer that Michael offered us was a surprising one to me. Um, the story that he tells here of uh, ownership I wasn't expecting as a kind of basis of hanging in there in a politics of hope, uh, at least in the face of all these changes. Um, and certainly the idea of self-gentrification is something that I'm personally going to go away and wrestle with and tangle with for a little while. Um, 
I guess the question that you know, we must pose in those sorts of circumstances, and it's, again, a glib and easy question maybe for me to pose, but when does even that mechanism pass from a point of people staying in situ and selling pastries to a situation where they find themselves selling their houses uh, because the values are going up so much and that gentrification then is not so much self-gentrification but becomes uh, the other thing. And so it would be very interesting to know more, for me anyway, about the generational trend transfers that might be going on uh, in that space and how long um, that self-gentrification process can be the basis for communities hanging in there, um, as you put it. Um, but I just want to finish by saying I just thought it was, to me anyway, an incredibly powerful last few minutes of that talk, right? Um, because um, I feel as though speaking to you as a geographer, um, it was a real rallying cry for the power of anthropological work in our thinking and acting about cities, um, and one which I must say, um, you know, have hairs standing up on the back of my neck now, even talking about it, um, because it seems to me that what we get from the kind of engagement that Michael uh, and Non and his anthropological colleagues, Linda here, get from the work that they do, um, is that they will come at this question from the perspective of human dignity and equality because they've actually got to know people um, living in the circumstances that they're writing about uh, and can't skate around that, can't avoid <laughs> those sorts of things and maybe don't feel as much necessity as others of us might do to dress up our concerns about human dignity and equality with spreadsheets and tables about um, you know, the economic benefits of aging in place and the et cetera, et cetera, right? Like all that stuff is great and important and we must do it. But um, I think as a basis for academics, forming alliances and relationships with the people in cities with whom we work, actually starting from a point of equality and dignity and respect um, is an incredibly important and promising basis for those kinds of alliances that we must form if our work is actually going to transform these circumstances. So I will leave it to you now to ask some questions of Michael and thank you for your time. And thank Michael again for such a wonderful presentation. Yeah, I'm um, wondering, uh, I guess just kind of to play the devil's advocate a bit, um, with uh, talking to people in uh, sort of, uh, I guess these sort of situations in uh, Nanning in South China, um, I was thinking a lot of the people, um, yeah, exactly, I guess like you said, they don't, they don't value small houses, they see themselves um, going and living in huge apartment blocks and they, you know, talking to them, um, uh, uh, you know, even about, say, the recent um, uh, demolition of, like, a street food street there, um, it, it was a weird sort of situation of denial where we were sort of, uh, I, I was saying that, you know, that street food, st food uh, sort of street is going to be demolished and, you know, probably, um, you know, corporate, uh, like McDonald's-y kind of institutions are going to take the place of like the smaller individual owners of these stores. Um, and they were sort of like, yes, but this is development. This is getting richer. And I guess, I guess this sort of mentality, I guess, is this the, um, you know, the, the, the fact that people have now internalized these development discourses, I guess that's what I'm asking. 
Thank you for the question. Uh, well, I'm not really an expert uh, on, on China in that sense, but um, I will tell you one story. We were visiting Nanjing and heard this tale of somebody living, I think, on the 27th floor uh, in a building in which the lift had broken down. So this person was very old and probably would never be back down to earth again. Um, I, to me, that emblematizes the problem, that um, what you have is uh, a government policy that certainly has taken the Chinese people out of poverty. We have to accept that uh, the extraordinary achievement, actually, of, of the Chinese government over the years in reducing poverty is something we should not minimize. But they've done it at a certain price because they've done it in a way that is more consistent with their very formalized idea about human progress uh, than with really very much respect for the social experience of ordinary people. And after all, at various points, especially during the Cultural Revolution, there was an intentional desire to break that social experience in order to replace it with an ideologically different frame. Um, one result of that has been that China today uh, has huge numbers of people living in buildings with very poor services, uh, and they are indeed enormous. I mean, I'm always struck in Shanghai, especially enormous, and, and Guangzhou and places like that. But, but I also would say that there is nothing necessarily antisocial about a high-rise building. It just means that the planners need to rethink. There was, for example, a, a real effort made in Barcelona to build high-rise buildings for working-class people uh, in which on every floor there would be a socializing area, which actually then was used for playing cards, drinking coffee, and so on. Uh, in other words, for socializing. Uh, and I have not come across any examples of that in China. I don't know if they exist, but it seems to me this is the kind of thing that perhaps uh, should be urged on planners. Yes, you know, you have a huge population. You've got to solve the problem if you're going to, uh, for example, develop the land for something else and can't afford to have people living there. Whether the sacrifice of social life for these other forms of development is worth it is a completely different but related question. I think there is no more dangerous word in the vocabulary of almost any language than the word development. Um, and I see uh, in development studies the same kind of need of critique that we see in heritage studies. Why is that? Because as Jim Ferguson points out in his book, uh, The Anti-Politics Machine, the very concept of of um, development is predicated on a 19th century social Darwinist evolutionist view of human progression as being unidirectional. And it also assumes that we know which direction represents real progress. Well, anthropologists, I would like to think, are a bit less arrogant than those kinds of planners who insist that they already know. And it's not so much the planners in this case, I think, as the bureaucrats who simply want to deal with the problem and get it out of their way. So um, let me conclude my answer by simply by saying that um, you've raised a very interesting point. I think there are many different ways of dealing with high-rise existence. And also, of course, people who live in societies where uh, everyday social interaction is not very intense would be relatively less affected by being forced to live in these kinds of uh, very separated individualistic dwellings. 
Um, but that's certainly not true of China. I mean, Chinese villages have very intense social life. We know that from a number of ethnographic studies. So, you know, what would I do if I were uh, the master planner of China? I think the first thing I would do is bring in a bunch of anthropologists and ask them to tell me what life in the villages was like from which these people came or what life in the slums was like to see whether there was some way in which we could reproduce the qualities that they deemed essential to their mental health. So that's, I think, you know, that's the, the, the idea. It's the utopian answer. This is utopian. But if we don't start from a utopian principle, we won't go anywhere. We've got another question there. Yeah. In addition, in addition to um, the question of uh, gentrification around development, uh, it seems to me that you've got another um, factor in postmodernity, and that is... Um, the, the the urgent need for more sustainable uh, perspectives. Uh, have you got any thoughts about uh, permaculture design, for example? Uh, that's very important, and I think that the I mean the, the the trouble with sustainability has become such a buzzword that we often forget that it covers a multitude of problems. But uh, to answer in the most, since we're running short of time, and I want to I want to give you a, a really serious answer to what I think is a very serious question, uh, we uh, cannot solve the social problem without attending also to the environmental one. So, I mean, that that basically the bottom line. The problem that we face is that those neoliberal, neoliberal forces that are thinking short term are as cavalier in their attitudes to uh, environmental issues as they are to social issues. In some ways, I would say that we should regard all of them as environmental issues because human suffering is very much a part of, of, of the larger frame of destruction in the world. So I'm very glad you raised that and thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Courtney. I'm from Boston, actually. I know, so neighbors. Hi, um, um, I was wondering that Boston's doing a lot of community outreach recently about flooding and um, asking the community to participate in solutions and give their input. Do you guys have any opinions about like what works in terms of community outreach and opening doors to the people to solve those problems and what doesn't work? Thank you. Um, well, you know, Shelley Arnstein years ago wrote a very famous article on uh, the myth of participation. I forget the way she worded it, but what she said was that, that very often community outreach seems to promise the possibility of participation, but that actually this was a palliative that was often used to paper over uh, very serious problems. Now, I don't know enough about the particular programs you're thinking about to be able to say whether they work or not. But the question I would always ask is, for whom are they working? Actually, the, the, the key question I always ask every graduate student in my program is, who does what to whom and why? So if I see an outreach program uh, being enthusiastically endorsed by a group of residents, the question you should ask is, what particular interest does that group have? Are they trying to do something that will give them more of a collective social life, or are there individual pursuits involved here that perhaps would undermine that? Um, and I think that, that would be the acid test. Kurt, did you want to say something? Very, very briefly, um, I guess I've, I'm working at a 
research project myself right now about these problems of participation. Uh, and I guess if you flip the view of a process like that to the perspective of the citizens on the ground, for them, frequently it seems to me the key question is not one of participation but one of organisation. So in terms of when we see citizens really shaping their cities, it seems to me it's not as often as not because somebody has asked them their views about a thing that they're about to do, but because they've got themselves organised and pressed <laughs> their views on people who don't want to hear them. Um, so this tension between participation and organisation is something for me anyway that I'm always interested in and seeing how that operates in different cities around the world, I think, yeah, is an important question. Uh, actually, the case of Pomahakan um, is oddly like like that because here is a group of 300 people who defied the might of a city hall representing a population of 12 million for 25 years, quarter of a century. It's amazing. The only thing that now makes it impossible is that with a military government, of course, the city hall can do pretty much what it likes. But it's precisely because they organized that they were able to do this. And this has led me to question the, the validity and the value of making a distinction between formal and informal settlements because these kinds of communities which are technically illegal in the eyes of, of the most literally minded legal scholars are actually very formally organized. They couldn't survive otherwise. Um, my friends in Pomahakan have procedures for conducting meetings that would put Robert's rules of order to shame. So I think this is, a, you know, this is, I, I think Kurt's answer is absolutely on, on the mark because if you don't, if you have local level organization that is engendered from a local desire to do something, then you have a much better chance of resisting, in part because those mighty figures in, in the formal administration actually don't expect it and it catches them unwares. And I think that's been a lot of the success of Pomahakan and many other communities. There are cases in India and Pakistan that I know about where, again, they've held out for years in part because the governments were totally unprepared to recognize that these people had a viable organization. They just assumed it would collapse very quickly, and it didn't. Thanks. Uh, so I've, I've got a question for you, Kurt. I guess um, if you can relate what you were just saying about what's happening in Sydney to this kind of worldwide, you know, noticeable worldwide surge of like that seems to go with people being divested of the places in which they're living and they somehow don't belong to them anymore. Um, I mean, it, it really is about how the financial uh, system's working, I guess, But you, and this is how we see it reflected. Do you have any thoughts about how the situation in Sydney is relating to the to the stuff we've been hearing about in these other countries, or yeah, yeah. Look, I think, and I'm I've got I'm influenced here by a couple of very good postgraduate students in my school that I'm working with who are asking these very questions, um, and. Part of the work that they're trying to do is to take some of those core concepts like dispossession uh, and think about how from Jakarta to Sydney actually, you know, is it meaningful to compare um, the eviction of residents from Kampungs um, to what's going on here in Millers Point um, or what's going on in Waterloo? And I guess that's, to me still, I don't have a good answer to it other than to say that sometimes we do see similarities in terms of, as you say, some of those same global financial imperatives, but also mechanisms of investment and investment vehicles uh, and the commodification of housing as opposed to its decommodification through the idea of 
a right um, to home. Um, that is a, a logic, at least, that is common across those places. Um, but also this thing about stigma that gets attached to particular places in advance of their <laughs> eviction and dispossession that I think, again, is something that is really worth exploring in a comparative sense. Uh, and again, I don't know, but I'm still reflecting on it, but one of the things that really did strike me about your talk, Michael, was just about that process in, um, in Thailand of order and beauty um, and the stigma of those who aren't you know, perceived to be matching that, um, you know, and just the way that that kind of, these ideas around order, stigma, et cetera, interact. And certainly, again, at least in the, in the public housing instances here in Sydney, like, you know, there's years and years of stigma around problem estates, failed tenants, house owes, blah, 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 that then suddenly lead to a process where it's okay to a victim um, from where they are. So I guess that's some initial thoughts to your question anyway. Okay. Um, I, I just wonder, was there a question? Did you have a question? Yeah, this will be our last question, just you. Thanks. Michael, what, what would you say uh, in the question, like in Singapore, I know, I know you haven't it, where it's a city-state, the, the, the space is so limited, uh, controlled by an authoritarian government, uh, yeah, uh, um, yet, uh, I'm, I'm not saying they are all good, but you know, the housing is the HDB, the Housing Development Board, control 99% of housing there. You can't sell in the open market, you sell to them, and they you know, give you a certain profit uh, if there is. Um, and they continuously uh, demolish even new flats to make, a, make for bigger ones. There is no sort of um, rural society. The, the whole culture is all has been uh, destroyed or become. Whether you're Chinese, you're Malay, everybody has got no choice but to live in a flat. What the, the people? What what can then they do in a situation like that? You talk about urban space. They provide certain urban space. Uh, at the bottom of units, there is a area where they can play mahjong or they can have funerals or wedding parties. So I'm not saying that that's the best. That what others? What can? Uh, there be done uh, to improve their lives and not co uh, con uh, contravene uh, the authorities. Uh, I'm, I'm very glad I'm, I've not never been asked to be an advisor to the Singaporean government because, uh, as you point out, it is a very unusual situation. There's no rural hinterland. It's a very tiny space. Uh, the, the more repressive aspects of the government have at least had the effect of keeping ethnic tensions under some sort of control, though whether that will continue into the distant future is, I think, much more questionable. There's been a lot of social engineering. All the Chinese are now learning Mandarin or have learned Mandarin, so they're different ethnic or, you know, 
dialect identities are being lost and so on. Same thing is true for the Indian communities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, we know all of this, and yet it is remarkable how peaceful on the whole uh, Singapore is, so that on the one occasion when there was a serious riot, uh, it really shocked people because um, it seemed like a challenge to order. But I think that points to the problem, that if you achieve a very hermetic form of order, at some point it will crack, because that's just not human nature. It's not the way humans operate. And so my sense is that the first wave of response to this has already happened, that the Singaporean government became, to some extent, less rigid in its policies. Um, I suspect that if they continue to have intelligent leadership, that's what will happen again and again, that there will be concessions made. But at the same time, some of the homogenization that they have tried to make happen will happen. I think it's happened already to a, to a certain extent. Now, with regard to the spatial dimensions, again, there isn't much space, true, but you can be creative about the way you build high-rise buildings. Um, I have actually been the guest of a rather poor family uh, of Indian origin in one of these uh, public housing uh, sectors, and I was, I was actually rather shocked at how poorly constructed it was. But you, the, the argument, the counter-argument would be, but everybody does have at least a home. So I guess you know the answer is that the Singaporeans will continue to have to think about what's more important. And that's going to change from generation to generation. The other dimension of this, which I think is going to be very hard for Singaporeans, is that the question itself comes from what is sometimes now called methodological nationalism. That is, we assume that the important unit of analysis is the nation state. But that isn't always true. And given that Singaporeans have very intense contacts with many neighboring countries, including Malaysia, Indonesia, and China, um, it would seem to me that it would be more intelligent, perhaps, to try to plan for the future on the understanding that those boundaries will become more porous with time and that population movements will therefore result from the dissatisfaction of people with the particular kinds of housing conditions that they have. So that may change the demographic dynamics within Singapore as well. I'm no expert on Singapore, but I've been there quite a number of times and seen uh, some of these issues and heard people talking about them. And that does seem to be the general tenor of the conversation that, you know, one day we'll be able to get out of here more easily and then maybe some of us will emigrate. I mean, it's such a small space that uh, I, one has to, uh, I think, be impressed by the achievement of, of, of balance that has been managed up to now, but it has come uh, at a serious cost for a lot of people as well. Thank you. Great. Um, I think we're going to call it a wrap there, just as the room's warmed up. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so um, Michael Hertzfield, thanks so much for, for the talk and uh, really enlightening for the audience here. And thanks for coming and contributing. And Kurt, also, for your excellent comments. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to everybody here. I'm sorry to send you out into the cold night, but we're over time. And thanks for your enthusiasm and attention. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. 
For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.